Hi folks, this is Kim and you're listening to The Contemporary Educator, a podcast dedicated to all my fellow teachers out there who are trying to balance the many demands placed on The Contemporary Educator. I'd like to acknowledge that I am on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations and I feel very, very fortunate to be able to live here and, um, and do all my work here. So today what I want to talk about is diagnoses a little bit. Um, if you've been kind of keeping track of the blog as well, thecontemporaryeducator.com, you'll know that I've been talking about different treatments for primarily anxiety or depression since those are really the most prevalent mental health concerns that we're faced with these days. And uh, I've, I've kind of outlined some techniques and strategies that teachers can employ that are, are founded from evidence-based uh, therapeutic practice. So you know, there's some strategies kind of outlined on cognitive behavioral therapy and how you can employ some of those tactics in your classroom. There's also solution-focused therapy and narrative therapy, both of which kind of have some guidelines for how you can employ those strategies in your classroom. Next week, I'll be doing one on response-based therapy, which is kind of my preferred model of practice. But today, I just kind of want to talk about diagnoses because we have a lot of students in our classes who come in with a diagnosis, whether it's uh, related to our individual education plans or it's not. Um, we have a lot of students who are struggling with a lot of different things, some of which end up being diagnosed and some of which don't, but they're still experiencing them with or without a professional labeling it with you know, whatever diagnosis they've chosen to label it with. So before I get started, I just want to give you guys a heads up if you're listening right now. I'm doing this out of my bedroom, not my usual, well, usually I do it from my kitchen table, but it's from my bedroom today because we're in the process of packing to move. So um, if you lose me for a minute or if the sound quality isn't great, I apologize ahead of time. It's not as quiet up here and my microphone is not nearly as stable. So um, bear with me if you hear like what sounds like me falling, it's chances are it's just the microphone. I am clumsy enough to fall, but it's probably just the mic. So just uh, hang in there and I may have to actually keep adjusting things kind of as we go as well. So uh, yeah, bear with me. Anyways, getting back to diagnosis, I want to talk about uh, kind of the positive aspect of a diagnosis. So you know, we, we don't need to know all the ins and outs or the diagnostic criteria of depressive, major depressive disorder. We don't need to know the diagnostic criteria of social phobia, um, also called social anxiety disorder. We don't need to know those ins and outs in order to support our young people in class. If we're a therapist or, you know, a, a counselor, of course it is helpful to have that information and uh, reading up on your diagnostic statistics manual is probably useful to some degree, um, you know, insofar as like, it'll help you tease out what feels relevant and what doesn't. But I just want to talk today about when a young person gets a diagnosis, we look at all of the deficits that that diagnosis carries. You know, we look at what they can't do anymore or what they could never maybe what we perceive is what they could never do. We look at how it's going to impact their learning negatively and we look at how it's going to impact their friendships or their future negatively. And we kind of surround a diagnosis with all of the things that are problematic for that young person. All of the things that they're inevitably going to be struggling with. And we don't consider the other side of things too. And I'm not just talking positives in terms of increased funding or an individual education plan or more access to 
therapeutic resources, which in some case, of course, those are positive. And in some cases, those do happen. Um, I want to acknowledge, though, that in, in a lot of cases, there are a lot of young people struggling who have no access to any resources. So in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily help a student a whole lot to hear about their diagnosis other than the fact that they may feel as though they're not alone in that diagnosis they might be like okay there's an explanation for why I feel the way that I do and it helps to have that explanation but once they receive that diagnosis we hear a lot of how it's going to negatively impact them We talk about what a shame it is that this young person has anxiety and what a shame it is that this young person has depression and, oh, it's so sad that, you know, this kid is struggling with insert diagnosis here. And of course, too, there's room to acknowledge that it's in some way is going to make their lives more difficult. But I think there's also a lot of room to acknowledge how um, these diagnoses are, are not necessarily innate. They're not part of who they are as a person. But they can shape positive ways in which a person interacts with the world around them. And if we start to look at the flip side of it and we stop negatively associating a diagnosis with negative behaviors and, and negative situations this kid's going to enter, um, we give them opportunity to take some ownership over it and say, okay, yes, I might have this diagnosis and these things might be more difficult for me. But look at all of these things that I'm actually really good at because of how I relate to the world. And uh, I remembered my supervisor. I've talked about her before because she's the bomb. Like, she's super awesome. And uh, I remember her talking about her ADHD diagnosis and saying, you know, all of these positive things about how she, yeah, had some things that were more difficult for her. But look at all of these great things that she now had. All of these things that, you know, other people who don't have that diagnosis may not have these qualities. And so she chose to look at it that way. And, I've always really appreciated that because it's forced me when I work with young people and they're upset about a diagnosis or just upset in general, it has forced me to help to analyze and challenge some of those preconceived beliefs about a diagnosis being the be all end all. And frankly, they're not. They are one label and, um, you know, that kind of labeling and diagnosis is often very subjective anyhow, but... The point is um, that I, I just want to dive into a couple of the really common diagnoses that we see, mental health diagnoses, and start to kind of help reframe some of the deficit language and start to talk about some of the potential pros to um, these diagnoses. I am by no means minimizing the increased stress or challenge that this presents to young people in the school system. I am by no means trying to minimize anyone's personal lived experience. And so all I'm doing here is just providing a different lens through which to see some of these things and to know that, you know, there's a you're gonna still have all of these incredible qualities some of which are laid out in a diagnostic manual as being deficits or negatives and we can actually start to look at them even you know the specific ones that that are diagnostic criteria why don't we just turn those on their heads and look at how that may be helpful or how you have developed this as a strategy moving forward for all of these other situations that you might be in so that's kind of where I'm going with this today. I hope you stick with me. Um, I, you know, I busted out my dusty old DSM 
Um, I have the DSM-4. I never bothered buying the 5. <laughs> I probably should have, but it is on the internet. So I have, I have read the DSM-5. Um, it wasn't my favorite light reading. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but I, I busted it out. I looked through the actual criteria and I'm just going to present some of the criteria in layman's terms. Like when you're talking to young people, you don't use that language. It doesn't work. As you're going through this, think about any potential mental health diagnoses you or a loved one has had and see if you can see qualities in them that may be diagnostic specific, but are actually not necessarily deficits or negatives. And I'm sure you can, and I'm sure you see all of these other lovely qualities about somebody too, but I'm looking specifically at um, the diagnostic criteria. So I'm going to start with anxiety because that's my, my specialty, both as an experiencer of and as somebody who has worked with a lot of very anxious youth. And I'm going to look at generalized anxiety as well as um, social phobia, so social anxiety disorder. So both of which are characterized by like excessive worry, restlessness, easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating, irritability, muscle tension. Um, Social phobia has the added component of um, these experiences being specific to a social setting or social situation in which somebody is, you know, meeting a bunch of new people perhaps or is being asked to present. They're experiencing... um, performance related anxiety all of that falls under the kind of social anxiety category um and they experience the same kind of symptoms right you might get the same kind of physical symptoms as you would for generalized anxiety the difference is just that generalized anxiety is more generalized so when we are with our student who has received a diagnosis of generalized anxiety or social anxiety disorder or any number of different anxiety-related disorders. There's quite a quite a broad category, and obsessive-compulsive falls under there. So there's lots of different things that it can kind of fall under. <clears throat> quite often, that student is seeing all the things that they can't do, that they can't present in front of other people, that they, you know, feel too anxious. They're they're feeling all the negative feelings in their bodies, and that's all that they can relate to is all of how, um, you know. The disorder itself is characterized by all these negative things that somebody might experience. But what I want to, what I wonder about is, you know, kind of flipping that on its head and, and acknowledging anxiety as an overall sensitivity and awareness, noting that they have an increased awareness of what's going on around them, of other people, and how they relate to other people. They are very sensitive to. Um, you know, how they feel and they're very compassionate and caring. And if you have somebody who's experiencing generalized anxiety, they might be feeling like other people don't like them or that they have hurt somebody by saying something or that, you know, um, they are concerned about tests they're concerned about. So that's generalized is where there's a mixture of different things where it, it falls under potentially social and performance and whatever, but it also um, has a mix of different anxieties toward different things too. And so why not start to look at this young person as having an increased sensitivity? And I think of sensitivity as being a positive, um, although sometimes I know it's, it's used with a negative connotation, but if we think of somebody with anxiety disorder, an anxiety disorder as having an increased sensitivity and awareness to what's going on around them, we can start to tease out with them what it is that they're aware of. 
if they're feeling test anxiety, what are they acutely aware of that is causing that both physical and emotional response for them? If they feel performance anxiety, what is it that they're acutely aware of? The reality is that regardless of situation, the anxiety is a defense response. It's created as a way to try to protect them and shield them from whatever fearful outcome they predict. And so why don't we start to understand how this anxiety is creating a compassionate, caring, sensitive, and overall aware person and start to help the person relate to it that way so that they can filter out the moments in which it is compassionate, caring, and helpful and start to acknowledge the times when it maybe feels less so. Because once we paint all of anxiety with the same brush and we label it disordered anxiety, we start to think of all anxiety as being bad. But anxiety is actually a normal defensive response. We all have it and we all live with anxiety in different situations. The difference is, is that many of us don't have have anxiety kind of impact us negatively in our day-to-day lives. It doesn't impact our ability to attend our job or complete our tasks, at least for the most part. And when it becomes disordered, we start to think of how it's negatively impacting the person. But there's still going to be situations in which anxiety is a positive. And we have anxiety, you know, when we don't have an anxiety disorder, we experience positive anxiety all the time. In the moment, it doesn't feel positive, but it's created there as a defense response and it's important and it is useful. And so how has this young person experienced anxiety positively? How do we help them to filter out the times in which it is actually negative and the times when it's actually not? And we start to acknowledge the fact that these things that are diagnosed, that are diagnoses, you know, the difficulty concentrating. Well, that just that tells me that you're very aware of the other things that are going on around you. It tells me that you're perceptive to other people's feelings and emotions too. And those are positive things. So we need to kind of start to look at how we can reframe. That's really what I'm going with here, reframing. Another one that I want to talk about is ADHD. So another really common diagnosis, historically it was separated into ADD and ADHD. And now it's all under the ADHD category. So um, it's still ADHD, but you you might have a different variation. And it's kind of characterized by, you know, making careless mistakes, um, an inability to be organized, trouble listening when somebody's speaking straight to you, lots of fidgeting or, or kind of a sense of like being on the go all the time excessive talking, blurting at answers before a question is finished. Those kinds of things are are pretty typical ADHD responses. As somebody who exhibits many of these symptoms myself, um, I never have received a formal ADHD diagnosis. Um, It wouldn't shock me if somebody would agree that that would maybe be fitting for myself. (laughs) Um, But when we talk about you know, we label something as being a careless mistake. Who is it careless to? You know, is it because in the in the diagnostic criteria itself, it specifically kind of highlights schoolwork, uh, employment, that kind of thing, chores, you know, that kind of thing. But who is that work careless to? Because if a student is invested, ADHD or not, 
chances are they're not going to be making careless mistakes. It's more than likely on things that they care less about. So it's careless because they care less. <laughs> and so, you know, who are who are we trying to please when we say that a young person is making these careless mistakes on their homework? Well, I don't know, maybe they just don't give a crap about that homework. And maybe the difference is just that other students see a, a consequence to not caring about all the homework, so they do it regardless of how they feel about it. But maybe an ADHD student is just more able to filter out the things that, that, that matter and the things that don't, and the consequences of not doing it feels like it matters less to them. And so we have to understand, like, what is like subjectively, what is it that they're not focusing on that we think that they should be focusing on? And why is it deemed important to us and not to them? When it comes to like fidgeting or being on the go, um, you know, I, I didn't have a problem with this when I was younger and I have really had a problem with it as an adult. I'm a huge fidgeter, but I'm also really athletic. And so, you know, I wonder at what point does it cross that point of of a young person just not being able to sit in a desk for six hours and fair enough you know many of us can't many of us adults can't and as the teacher we're up moving around constantly and I find that the days when I'm sitting doing my report cards I, I can't concentrate for that whole time I can't sit there and and think okay well you know I only have two more hours of report card comments let's just sit here and do it no, I'm taking breaks. I'm up and walking around. It takes me four hours because of how many times I need to stop and refocus. Young people don't have the opportunities to do that the same way because we control our bodies, but we also are controlling theirs and saying, you have to sit still. You have to sit still for another half an hour. You have to wait until recess or you have to wait until lunch. And so maybe these are just young people, and I know we've heard this before, who are more kinesthetic and, and need to be up moving around and just need to move their bodies. They have energy in their bodies that need to burn. So why is that problematic? Well, for them, it isn't. On the weekends, it isn't. Uh, you know, when they're at home, it probably isn't that big of a deal. But in schools, in the workplace, it is problematic because we start to see how it's not negatively impacting the young person themselves. It's negatively impacting our expectations of the young person. And as adults, we might notice that it's negatively impacting our timeline that we arbitrarily set for completion of something. And so, you know, we have to start to ask ourselves these things and allow students the opportunity to ask us these things too. Is it absolutely imperative that this kid wait another 10 minutes to take a break? Or is it possible for them to walk down the hall, go get a drink of water, you know, take the long way back? and then return when they feel like they can focus again. So we need to wonder here with an ADHD diagnosis, who, who are we pleasing when they are sitting still and attentively? Um, another one is, you know, talk successively is one of the other criteria. And I wonder about a reframe of that, of seeing how social they are, how able to engage other people they are, um, how charismatic they might be. How, you know, they're able to, regardless of where you put them in a room, they're able to connect with another human being. And that is a real gift. And that's what we want from our students. We want them to be able to relate to other people all the time in any setting, not just with the person they're sitting with that day, not just with their friends. And so 
you know, maybe they're just being friendly. Maybe they are just, you know, helping the person who's sitting next to them feel engaged and connected too. And, you know, we need to allow space to look at excessive talking as maybe not being problematic in every situation. And I know it's a fine line. I understand that, you know, there's going to be social situations all throughout our lives in which we can't excessively talk. But there's also times when it is a positive. And allowing students to see that having an ADHD diagnosis and maybe meeting some of that criteria doesn't mean that in all situations it's all bad. That all, all the time excessively talking is a negative. It's not a negative all the time, right? Another one was blurting out answers before the questions even finished. Well, I wish half the time I could get students to answer questions that I pose to the class, <laughs> that I could get them to blurt out any kind of answer because, you know, maybe they're just engaged or they're eager or they're excited to be learning. And if they're blurting out answers before the question is finished, that tells me that they are somewhat invested in what is going on, what situation is happening. And if they're invested in the learning, then why not blurt out your answers? Sure, you know, wait until the question is finished and you can model that. But why is it a negative to be eager about your own learning? And how can we help them to see that it's okay to be eager? It's okay to be, you know, relentless in your pursuit of knowledge and to feel really excited about whatever it is that's been brought in and whatever it is the teacher is presenting you with. Um, so just a couple of ways to kind of flip ADHD kind of on its head and see how as a diagnosis, it doesn't make for a bad kid. It doesn't make for a negative learning environment. If you start to look at all of the ways in which this can be a really positive opportunity to not only engage that student, but to engage other students, to help the student use their talents that come with a diagnosis like ADHD, or if, if not a diagnosis, but with ADHD tendencies, to help them use those talents, to help engage the rest of the class as well. And as somebody who exhibits many of these tendencies myself, and every time I look at this diagnosis, I'm like, when, <laughs> when is somebody going to ask me about this? Um, like, I find that I relate really well to my students. And I find that the ability to, to constantly change my tactic and to jump from one idea to the next and to the next certainly doesn't work for all of my learners. But it certainly works for some. And it also you know, allows me to be more flexible and fluid. And I don't see why that would ever be a problem to be able to change direction unexpectedly just because it needs to happen. Um, that there isn't that rigidity associated with an ADHD diagnosis that a student is able to carry on a conversation and engage and, and then go and do this other thing and then jump to this other thing. And, and sure, maybe it's hard to focus on one thing for a duration of time, but it doesn't mean that that thing isn't going to get done. It just maybe means that they're excited about a lot of different things. And so their attention is drawn a lot of different ways. And um, there's certainly strategies to help manage that. But the diagnosis itself isn't necessarily a negative quality to have. Um, the next one, and this is really going to be the last one that I want to focus on. Because these are the three kind of big ones. I'm not going to talk about autism Really, it's anxiety, ADHD, and then depression. 
So depression kind of comes in three different categories. You have depressive disorder, then you have major depressive disorder, um, and then you have dysthymia or dysthymic disorder, which is uh, like a depressive mood. And it can fluctuate in and out, um, and it's it's less extreme than the other two diagnoses. So it's often dysthymia is uh, is very commonly diagnosed, but doesn't often require or come with treatment in terms of medication. It can, but it doesn't it it doesn't always. Um, it's it's much more gentler of a diagnosis, just basically saying, "Yep, you are feeling sad these days," and. There's some things that you can do about it if you choose to, but it's not necessarily uh, kind of a permanent state. Not that any diagnosis is necessarily a permanent state, but um, just that's kind of the difference between the three. Major depressive disorder quite often comes with therapeutic treatment as well as like pharmaceutical treatment. So it's, it's a much heavier diagnosis to receive. It's also often comorbid with other diagnoses too that are also heavy in nature. So they all kind of categorize like a, or they, they're all kind of characterized, I should say, by like low mood, having severe low mood um, that feels over and above normal, unable to kind of get out of it disliking things that they used to once be interested in it can come with like fatigue or you know extreme tiredness it comes with um either eating way less or eating way more disconnection from family from friends not doing things that you once liked all of the things that we associate with depression anyhow kind of fall into all three of these. It's just at what extremes they may be at and for how long they've experienced that extreme. Now, this one's tricky because depression isn't uh, uh, typically thought of as as a positive experience. And it's it's not. Like, depression sucks. It really sucks to feel all, all of this heavy, heavy, heavy stuff that you feel like you can't get out of. And it can really feel like it's a long, long road with no end in sight. But... The one thing that I do notice about the young people that I work with when they are experiencing depression is that I notice how aware they are of their previous actions and how it's impacted other people and also how other people's actions have impacted them. And so they have this real finely tuned understanding of what hurts them and what hurts other people. And that's pretty remarkable. Because they can look at a situation that they've experienced, and and quite often depression is thinking about things that have happened before. And anxiety is usually thinking about things that are going to happen, a worry for what's about to happen, and anxiety is like, or sorry, depression is like what has already taken place. And these young people are, are really in tune with what has happened to them and how they've been wronged and being able to verbalize how they've been wronged. They quite often also associate those situations with something that they've done wrong in response to how they've been wronged. And so, you know, it's an opportunity to kind of start to look at what they did right in those situations and how now they're very aware of when somebody else mistreats them. They know what it feels like to be mistreated and they can spot it a mile away. 
And that when they are distancing themselves from friends and family and things that they used to enjoy doing, it's another protective and defensive strategy. They're clearly doing it because somebody that they trusted before hurt them. And now it makes sense to distance yourself because it's hard to trust anybody when you feel like you've been hurt. So acknowledging that it, it's, it makes sense what they're responding with, but it's also now that they've learned, they've got this experience that they're like very sensitive to and aware of, they can start to um, notice if it's going to happen again. And that's pretty remarkable because many of us go blindly into our relationships thinking the best of them. And um, it's okay sometimes, I think, to go into a relationship understanding what it is that you want and what you don't want. And sometimes young people need help teasing that kind of thing out. But depression allows you to, I mean, you go over situations over and over and over again in your mind, what happened, how it happened, what you wish you'd done differently, how you wish you'd behaved differently, or how you're remorseful about your actions. And um, it allows you to not repeat that. And so, you know, sometimes young people just need an opportunity to know that, that what they did was okay. And because they've already had that experience once, they know how to prevent it from happening again. Now, that kind of takes some finesse, right? Talking about depression is, and finding the, the positives in um, experiencing depression takes some finesse, but it's possible and it's there um, because it is a defense mechanism and it's, it's a protective feature that everybody has. And so how do we make sure that students acknowledge it as a protective feature? They acknowledge what they've learned from their past mistakes, not their mistakes, but typically it's other people's mistakes toward them. And um, we validate their remorse and their feelings of regret. And we also validate what they did in that moment because every everything that we've done is um, in response to a stimulus and quite often it's a sensical response. Quite often somebody who's experiencing depression is also similar to anxiety, very sensitive, very aware and very empathetic and compassionate. And so we have to allow room for them to experience that too and to point out moments when that's happening. And so that, you know, even if they're not seeing it, we need them to know that we're seeing it. So that's just like in a nutshell, there's so many more positives, you know, to these, to all of these students who are experiencing these things way more than what I've listed here, but I just, the whole intent of this episode is just to kind of shed some light on the positive side of it. And I know that her diagnostic criteria and designation criteria really focuses on deficits, even though we use some strengths-based language. Realistically, what we're looking at are deficits. We look at what students can't do in order to modify or adapt to their programming. But I think it's helpful, particularly in mental health terms, to start looking at the things that students can do and to start acknowledging that with this diagnosis comes a host of of qualities that make this student who they are and that are positives for how this student can proceed into their future so that it doesn't feel like this weighted, heavy, negative burden for 
their entire lives if it's a diagnosis that attaches to them their whole lives. Because many of these young people, once they have the diagnosis, it feels very much like it's just a part of who they are now. And um, that's not always helpful. That's not always useful. But if they're going to feel that way anyway, then why not say, okay, well, if you feel like this is a part of who you are now, let's look at all of the things that you are. And that includes being really mindful that anxiety comes with your incredible, incredible awareness of what's going on around you, your incredible sensitivity to other people's needs. Your ADHD comes with the ability to be flexible and to bounce ideas off of each other and and to be open to talking to other people. Depression, yeah, it's heavy and it's really hard, but think about how able you are to be empathetic towards somebody else and learn from something that you've experienced before and move forward differently. So I just want to draw attention to that and I hope that this was helpful. And like I said earlier, please reach out to me. Like if you have a diagnosis or know of somebody who does and you're, you've teased out some of these positives, I'd really love to hear them. If you're having trouble teasing out some of these positives and maybe you just want to bounce some ideas off me, Again, let me know. Shoot me an email um, through the website at thecontemporaryeducator.com or you can find me on Instagram at teach.emote.repeat and I really hope to hear from you and I hope that everybody has a really fantastic rest of your day.